Thank you all for being here on a a first good snow of the year. Um, we had some, yeah. well, this is the adult class, but I can tell you in the kids' class, there is a different attitude. When you get an extra hour of sleep and wake up to what was supposed to be less than an inch of snow, which became one to two inches, if you're watching the forecast, and I don't know what it was at your house, but there was a lot more than one to two inches uh, of snow, but... I'm glad you made it here safely, and for those of you that are joining us online, because it's not safe for you to get out, uh, we're thankful that you're with us today. We're going through the book of First John, which is the second letter John wrote, or the second book in your Bible that's written by John, and it's at the end of your New Testament, so if you haven't found that already, you might go ahead and open up to First John. We're going to be in chapter 3 today, and uh, as those of you who have gone through our class through the summer, we went through the Gospel of John, and we recognized how that led into uh, a study of those letters that was written to the very first church who are putting into practice the very Gospel that you read about in the Gospel, according to John. And so now we've been in First John, been here for several weeks. We have a couple more weeks to go in First John, and then we'll hit Second and Third, and then that will be our series on uh, John's letters in the New Testament. Uh, but just a quick kind of recap of what you can know in First John. Remember that the letter of First John, when you get through the whole letter, at the very end, John tells you, here are the things that you can know. You remember, unlike uh, other letters in the New Testament, John is written as a demonstrative letter. Do you remember what that word means, demonstrative? He is, he is holding something up for you. He is demonstrating it. It's like putting it up on a billboard for you as opposed to letters that Paul might write where he's making an argument. You know, he wants to convince you of something, and so you read through uh, books like Romans or Galatians or Ephesians. It's like he's making this argument. That's not John. John is doing a demonstrative letter. Sometimes um, letters will be more forensic, and they're trying to show you evidence one side or the other. That's not John's kind of letter. John is simply saying, here are some things that you know. Let me remind you what you know. And then that, what you know, should be motivating. So you remember there were five, yay, six things <laughs> that you can absolutely know from the end of First John. I'll just enumerate them real quick. But these you, you'll find in chapter 5, starting in 13, all the way to the end. He just says there's five things that you can absolutely know. Take these to the bank. One, you can know that you have eternal life. The second thing, you can know that the God of the universe hears us when we call out to him third thing, we know that if he hears us, he'll actually provide what we need, what we ask for. You can absolutely know that. We know that those who continue to sin do not know God. Or actually what he says is, what we know is that those who are born of God, those who are the seed of God, God's children, do not continue to sin. And then the fifth thing that you can absolutely know is that we are from God. We're God's children, even though the rest of the world is under the control of the evil one. And then the sixth and final thing that you can absolutely know, take this to the bank, is we can know, wait for it, him. Not just know a topic or a subject or an answer to a question. We can actually know him. And that's where John ends. You can know him who is true. And then he ends with this line that says, keep yourselves from anything fake. Keep yourself from idols. So that's a review of 1 John. As you're reading through, you'll see these themes come back over and over where John is just reminding you these are the things that you can know. Quick recap to bring us to today's passage. 
Remember when we started out reading 1 John, we went through really most of chapter 1, and we were reminded of what it's like to walk in the light. And the image that comes to mind there is being in the garden again, where God has said, let there be light. And in his light, we walk with God. And there before God, we can be totally exposed before him without any fear, without any shame before God. And then last week, we talked about the second section there of John, mostly chapter 2 and in through chapter 3, where there, there are two very distinct agents at work in this world. Those who are children of God and those who are children of the evil one. And you remember how that goes back to what we're told in Genesis chapter uh, 3, where there will be this enmity, this fight, this struggle between the seed of the snake and the seed of uh, the woman. And you see that theme played out over and over again through Scripture. And John says, you're part of that. But he reminds you, and he says, look at how much love that the Father has for us. That of these two agents, that we would be called children of God. And that is what we are. So that's where we left off last week, is asking that question. What does it mean to be of those in this world who are agents of righteousness, who are children, children of God? Now that brings us to chapter 3, verse 11. And maybe I'll just read that one verse where John says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And we can go through the rest of that passage in a minute. But here's the first question of the day, and that is, why the sudden cameo of Cain and maybe Cain and Abel at this point in the story. Well, if you've been tracking with First John so far, uh, you'd probably be picking up on some of the subtleties, which become less subtle over time, of uh, the references back to Genesis and the Garden of Eden. And you start to see that, um, you know, in the beginning, God created man and woman. He split them in two. And then the whole idea is that as man and woman come back together, they represent the image of God through their relationship one to another. And then we see they fail their first test. Uh, they immediately start to blame one another. Their relationship falls. Um, and then you go into chapter, or then the end of chapter 3, you get this weird sort of uh, prophecy that God gives that you're now going to have enmity or you're going to have strife and struggle with your relationships between the descendants of the woman and the descendants of the snake. And then you immediately get into the story of Cain and Abel, and you're supposed to carry that with you as you go into Cain and Abel. You're looking for who are the descendants of the woman and who are the descendants of the snake. And then you come to Cain and Abel. They bring their offering before Yahweh, and Yahweh has, um, he has regard for Abel's offering, but not for Cain's. You're not told why. Uh, you can imply some things, but you're not specifically told why. But then the very next thing you're told is that Cain is angry. It says he's hot with anger. Um, he's mad at his brother, assumingly because his brother found the favor. His brother has delight in the eyes of Yahweh. Um, but you're also not told that God disliked what Cain did, but Cain doesn't like what Abel's doing. And so he has this frustration and this anger with him. And so when you start talking in First John about loving one another, and he references back to Cain, and then if you follow track through then the Old Testament, Cain and Abel becomes this 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 example, this motif of what it means to struggle with your brother. And so John's trying to riff off of that, that 
hey, remember since the beginning, you're supposed to love one another, but not like Cain, when he was put to the test, he failed because he took his hot anger and sin was crouching at his door, eaging him on to go ahead and pursue what he wanted to do, which was murder his brother. And that's exactly what he ended up doing because he gave in to that temptation. He did not image the God, uh, did not image God in the proper way by loving his brother. He did the complete polar opposite. He murdered his brother um, and imaged instead of God, he imaged the serpent. Yeah. So that introduces really the theme for uh, what we'll look at this week in First John. And most of you have caught this when we've talked about going through First John. And that's this theme of what does this mean when John says uh, that you've heard this from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then the example that he gives us is really a negative one. He says, don't be like Cain, uh, because there in the beginning, uh, in their garden, where there was one, but he was alone, as Tim says, God made two, and he brought them together. So these two were still meant to be one, but not alone. There was this introduction of relationship. Things were to be right in that relationship with each other, right with the relationship with God. Uh, But that breaks down largely because of the sin that we learn about there early in Genesis. It breaks down in the very first test of this between two brothers. By the way, the, oh, this is a little bit off topic, but it struck me when I was reading through the, um, the account of Cain giving his offering, and it says that Abel brought the best of his flock. Is that right? He brought the, he was the shepherd, brought the flock. Mm-hmm. And it says that Cain brought the fruit of Adama, which is the fruit of the ground. And remember, that's where we got the term human being, or Adam, and it's kind of this weird, or Adam, kind of this weird uh, reference there that that was Cain's offering. But the main point that we're meant to get in John bringing up this story from way back in the beginning is to say, this test is still going on, where in in your interactions with each other, even within this body, in this family, there's going to be this enmity between those who are being drawn into being agents of the serpent and those who are children of God. And John says, this is the message we have heard. We must love one another, not like Cain, because to not show love is a equivalent, he says, to murder. Yeah. Well, and then you also notice that when God God tries to help Cain out, he tries to give him some, some words of encouragement, really, try to push him in the right direction. And what does God tell Cain? He says, the thing that's lurking at your door, you can master it. You could rule over it, which is the exact same failure that his parents didn't do. His parents had that same calling. Um, and we're not going to get into detail on this, but you'll notice if you read through um, chapter 1 of Genesis, you notice there's this extra little phrase that's mentioned when he talks about the sea creatures. He mentions this thing that's, that's just, it stands out as this like sea monster almost. Um, our English doesn't translate it that way, but the original Hebrew, they talk about this sea creature that you're supposed to, it's part of creation, and then it has later connections to um, the serpent and to things that are evil. But the idea then is that Adam and Eve were to rule over those things. You know, you think of, well, where did the serpent come from? The serpent was part of God's good world. He made it in the, in the beginning. It was one of the things he created, and it went south along with human beings. But before that moment, Adam and Eve were supposed to rule over it. And so now you get to Cain and Abel, and Cain is presented with this same serpent moment. But instead of ruling over it, he lets it rule over him. He lets it dominate him. And so John brings this up as a, yes, a huge counterpoint. This is the exact opposite way you're to treat your brother. Because when you, when you have wrong relationships with one another, you're actually decreating God's good world. 
um, it's it's a massive implications of what's happening, you know, because again, your your biblical authors aren't seeing the world through their five senses. They're seeing the world through the eyes of Yahweh, and his reality is the true reality versus what we see. And so when you hate your brother, you're causing, I, I don't know how to explain it, but it's this massive rifts in, you know, the reality of God's good world. And, and I would say, too, that it doesn't matter if you look at the breadth of history or if you want to just cone in on one event, you know, that's going on, even in our time. John would say the one way to know whether or not what's going on is promoted by the serpent or the seed of the serpent or children of God is whether or not there is this expression of love. He says that is the one fundamental characteristic of those who are children of God. Look at verse uh, 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. For we know, here's another thing that we can know, that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Now, don't take that as, as if that's a checklist and says, okay, if you love someone, that's your ticket into eternal life. John's not saying that. What he's saying is that we can know that you are of these children of God who have moved over out of death into life because of this characteristic this one thing that you always see in this group of people who are children of God, and that thing is they love each other. And that is so profound. It is so obvious. That's how you uh, know the difference. Now, somebody may end with this and say, well, uh, to love someone means not to murder. Well, I haven't murdered, so I must, I must love my brother. Which is, which is you know, somewhat ironic because Jesus mentions this in the Beatitudes. Oh, yeah. You know? You're not, you've heard it said you're not supposed to murder your brother, but I tell you, don't hate your brother. And I think what you're supposed to learn then from the story of Cain is that murder was a, murder was a, a, a reflection of his motives. Murder wasn't the, the real heart of the problem. The heart of the problem was Cain's hatred for his brother, mm-hmm. was that he was choosing to do the opposite of what God wanted him to do. And so then along those lines of, you know, we read in chapter 3 where he talked about lawlessness, and that lawlessness was essentially you creating your own standard of living outside of God's commands. And so when, you, when Cain decided that he hated his brother, he put himself in the creator's role. He said, Abel is less important than I am. His significance is not there because I decide that. Cain set the rules, and so he chose that Abel wasn't worth keeping around. He wasn't worth existing, even though God Which, had given him value. Is that the, the, one of the first violations of that first command to be fruitful and multiply? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's a, you know, what, what's Canaan, or what are Adam and Eve told to do? Be fruitful and multiply. And it's much more than just procreation. Um, you're supposed to rule over the world in a, in a sovereign, humble, you know, governance of God's good creation that he made. And at the time, you're supposed to, you know, spread your offspring, teach them about Yahweh. You're supposed to spread the image of God, not just populate the world. And yeah, the very first thing you see the next generation do is he's killing them off. He's, do, he's doing the exact opposite. And he's not Unfruitful, not multiply. Yeah. yeah. He tears, tears it up. <laughs> and then we're given an example. Notice that John here will give us an example the, now, this is going to be the positive side. So he gives you a negative example and says, you know, you know Cain, you remember Cain, don't be that guy. But then he gives you the positive example. And who does he choose as the positive example? Do you see here in 1 John 3.16? This is a little side note, which you'll hear always stated in classes. Whoever numbered and uh, numbered chapters and decided on verses and so forth did a really good job pairing 1 John 3.16 with John 3.16. You remember what John 3.16 says? In the gospel according to John, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him not perish but have eternal life. That just pairs so nicely with 1 John 3.16, which is what you have before you now. By this we know love. What is love? This is how we know what it is. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how can God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So when this says that Jesus laid down his life for us, did we talk about what that life means? Yeah, that was the word suke. Yeah. Whereas it was more than just your physical life. It was the whole ramifications of who you are your entire identity yeah you know you remember in our study of the gospel according to john we talked a lot about this word life and how life can apply to just your body you know physical life it can apply to the stuff of life you know everything that you own uh it can apply to um you know just day-to-day walking but there was this word uh zoe that was really all encompassing life life that is real and and when it, when you read your scripture in english it doesn't tell you which life he's talking about. So it's always important when you run across the word life, usually you can catch it from the context, but it's always important to ask, what is the meaning of life in this passage? And so when you read this passage and it says, this is how we know what love even is, he laid down his life for us. What is the meaning of the word life here? It is this word suke, which is where we get our word psychology or uh, the, uh, I almost said psycho. But we've taken that word to mean more of just the mental life. In original Greek, this meant uh, somebody's whole being. So if you took you, the part of you that makes you unique from others and everything about your life, that is yourself. And so the, probably the better translation of this is that Jesus laid down his very self for us. And we ought to lay down ourselves for our brothers and sisters. Isn't that a powerful line? That there's your positive example. Not just pick somebody who's philanthropic and gives to the needy. Pick the creator of the universe, point to him, and notice how he poured out himself for us. That's what you do, is lay down your life for each other. And then he gives us an example of that. (laughs) And his example is, uh, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, um, do any of you have the world's goods? Yes. Now, the translators didn't do this. Actually, what he says is, if anybody has uh, the, uh, the life of this world, and the word life there is the word bios. We're going to term biology. And that just means the stuff of life which could mean what you gather because of your work, because of what you've saved up, because of what you would call yours, anything that you would say, yeah, that's mine, that's my truck, that's my house, that's my clothes, that's my job, that's my family, that's my whatever you would fill in the blank with. That would be this word, bios. And John says, if anybody has some of that bios and sees his brother in need but closes his heart to him, how can the love of God be in him? Can I, can I pass on some junior high humor? For everybody who's first learning to read this, you know, when you're learning uh, Koine Greek or Biblical Greek, the very first book you learn to translate is 1 John because it's the easiest Greek, most profound theology, but it's very simple to read Greek. 
Uh, and when you run across this passage, there's something in you that goes back to junior high and you start laughing. Because the, the phrase there is not, if anyone has the stuff of this world and closes his heart to him, you know what that means. I don't, I don't have compassion on them. Uh, that's not what it says here, closes his heart. It says, whoever has the stuff of this world and sees his brother in need and closes his bowels to him, how can the love of God abide in him? Can you imagine what that's like for your bowels to be plugged up or closed? That was the, that's the image that actually comes to mind. And it's very appropriate, as junior high as it is, to actually think about this. When you think of things that you think, like if I said, point to the part of your body that thinks, where would you point? You can do this. Your head. Yeah. My head, that's where I tend to, that's what we think in our <laughs> culture and cosmology, that's where I think. If I said, uh, where do you really feel something? when it's emotion. You point to your heart. It's in my heart. That's why the translators did that for you because they knew you wouldn't be able to read the rest of the book if they put what it really there. But if you were in, in ancient Ephesus where this letter was written or one of the churches that it first went to and were reading this letter, if Paul said, and he closes your heart to him, in their mind that would have sounded like you see your brother in need but you close your mind to them because in ancient Greek, heart really was where you did your thinking. And so that would carry a very different meaning to them. If you said, you see somebody in need, but close your mind, it's kind of like saying, I ignored their needs and I went on. Uh, John is saying something here much more profound. And you know this is true. If you're really nervous or scared or hurt, where do you feel it? It's okay to point there. In your bowels. It's in your bowels. (laughs) Yeah. They were right. And what John is saying, and he uses the appropriate language here, if somebody sees his brother has a need and closes his bowels to him. We call this congregational constipation. (laughs) There's the junior high part. And closes off that emotion and says, I will refuse to feel what my brother feels or to to feel this from the perspective of my brother or sister. John asks the question, which is obvious, how can the love of God be in him? Do you see how profound that is? And then he says, let's not love, which is what we say, and what we do, but with actions and in truth. So love, we find out here, is first and foremost something that we do, yeah. though it may be motivated by something that we, that we feel. We're going to skip down from there because 18 links us kind of down into chapter 4. And so let's go over to chapter 4, verse, did we say 7? Seven? 7. Yeah, where he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And let's talk for a little bit about what does love mean? Um, so you may remember several weeks ago when we were in the Gospel of John, we spent a, a one class time talking about Exodus 34, 6, where God self-describes himself. And one of the things he mentions, and actually it's probably worth reading that if you want to pull that one up. Which one's that? Exodus 34, 6. Yeah. Um, so God gives several descriptions of his character, of who he is. And it's the first time in the Bible where you get um, uh, God describing who he, you know, what, what characterizes his actions and his motives. Um, I think we should read that one. Yeah, so Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passes before Moses and proclaims, The Lord, the Lord. Remember, that's God's name, Yahweh, Yahweh. And then he gives these characteristics. A God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children, the third and fourth generation. And so one of the words in there is this word hesed, which I think in your translation that's the 
steadfast love. Yeah, they had to take two words to make sure you knew this wasn't just eh, love. Yeah. <laughs> well, and we looked at several different uh, translations of that, and you and you notice all of them are different. They all use different words because this word has said is an all-encompassing almost word, and it's really hard to define and it's hard to um, to narrow down quickly. But the the best understanding that I have that helps me as I read through it is that it's it's God's intention to always seek the betterment of mankind despite mankind's reaction. Um, and you can and you can apply that to your own lives. So it's someone who's intentionally doing actions, not feelings, but actions for the betterment of somebody else, regardless of how that person responds. And and at least in, I think oftentimes you see this in the Old Testament of God doing things for people. Not only do they not respond to His kindness and and faithfulness, but they do the exact opposite and intentionally try to hurt Him. You know, they turn their back on Him willingly, knowingly. And so I think it also carries connotations of you do something for somebody else, not expecting anything in return, but also possibly expecting bad things in return, things that could hurt you or be negative to you. But you don't let that stop you because your intention is to do good for them no matter what, because you seek their betterment. And, and that's a lot of what John seems to be getting at. He's calling on, you know, and that's why he keeps, he, ten times he says, since the beginning you're told to love one another because this is the exact love which God showed us when he made us. This is what he did in creation when he created a good world. I mean, he wasn't ignorant. He, he knew what was going to happen. That's why Genesis 4 through 11 is this dissertation of the fall of humanity. They turned their backs on him and they just got progressively evil and more evil to the point where you get to the flood and he's like, I've got to stop this or they're going to kill themselves. And so that was his mercy upon them. And so his hesed has been just demonstrated throughout the scriptures. And then you see it epitomized in the life and death of Jesus. And that's probably what John's referring to. So re- let's read through this section of John. But every time you see the word love, think of this whole ark story from the beginning of God in love, creating this world placing human beings there as his image and even when those human beings totally blow it when the world itself is pulled towards corruption still God's love doesn't go away he never pulls that back there's this steadfast love as he's remaking the world to be right again and all of that is in the background of John saying beloved let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God in other words, one of his kids, and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest or made known among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be this propitiation for our sins or this atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So do you hear in that this steadfast love of God is the example? Not just that we follow and say, I want to be like that. It's you are his kids. This is what you become is a group of people who end up displaying this type of love. In the New Testament, this word becomes agape. You've probably heard this form of love. It's not a feeling-based love. It's a love that, that gives without asking. It is a lay-your-life-down kind of love. Or as you said, it's a love that says, 
I see what you need, and I'm going to do everything within my power to help meet that need, regardless of your response, or even if you are about to stab me in the back. That's this chesed, this this type of love. Do you see how that plays out here? And this is what the early Christians, by the way, became known for. We talked about this. Can I tell a story? I think we talked about this when we were doing the Gospel of John. Um, The early Christians became known for the way they took care of each other in these communities. So this letter most likely was sent to churches there in what's now modern-day Turkey. Can you imagine that part of the world? So near Greece, but over kind of in the churches of that area. Um, And within about 60 years of this letter hitting some of those churches, there was a pandemic that rolled over that part of the world. We don't know exactly what it was. It was probably something like smallpox. But it ended up killing somewhere between a quarter and a third of the entire population from this pandemic or epidemic at the time moving across. And everybody fled. So in Rome, in the Roman Empire, if you were weak, you were kicked out. And that included if you had an infectious disease that might spread to others, their form of social distancing was social isolation. It was if you're sick, you get kicked out of the house, thrown out of the house, and if you're too weak, you just got left out in the streets. And so there were people in the streets of these communities that were just there because they were dying of this pandemic. If anybody was wealthy enough to do so, they got out of town. They left. Even the famous, uh, you've heard of Hippocrates, one of the surgeons later, uh, physicians in the Roman Empire was named Galen. He got out of town. He totally went out to the countryside. So even their best physicians got out of town. Uh, But do you know among all the people that were dying, there was about a 60% increased risk of survival from this epidemic if there was one thing true about you. And you know what it was? If you were cared for by one of these weird people in town who had this opposite way of responding to the pandemic. And when everybody else fled town or threw people into the streets, there was this one group of people that even at the risk of their own life would bring you, pagan or not, they would bring you into their home and they would provide food and they would provide fluid and what we would now call basic nursing care. And it was just that basic nursing care that led to about a 60% increase in survival. That happened during that pandemic. About 100 years later, there's another pandemic that really hits Rome. They found the same thing was true there. It was about 100 years after that. So now we're about 200 years after John wrote this. There was an elder in one of the places called Caesarea that had a building. And they said, you know what we should do is uh, we should, we'll worship here. But uh, let's build out kind of some wings with some rooms. And where we might set that up as an education center. He said, uh, let's just turn that into some those will be rooms for travelers coming through and the poor and the sick we'll let them stay there and the members of the congregation we'll train them to provide the food and the fluid and take care of them we'll even have some housing out back for the uh, medical personnel the physicians at the time who are coming through and and so we'll set up and they set up this entire campus it ended up being a 300 room campus where people would come and receive hospitality And guess what that was the very first example of? Basil of Caesarea set this up. It's the very first hospital was set up by Christians who took seriously what they read here, that what will make us different is we will see the needs of others and we will apply that. So when you walk out of uh, church today, turn over there to the right and you'll see Alaska Regional Hospital across the street, 250 beds hospital I think they have. Uh, You can correct me on that. Uh, and, and you can just smile and say, yeah, that was our idea. 
<laughs> they started that. Dr. Heffington. That's right. Yeah, because they had lost a fear of... Dr. Heffington just points out that this doesn't mean that the, all the Christians who helped out survived. The people who laid down their suke for each other literally laid down their bios and everything for each other. Many of them died, but they had lost this fear of death. Death. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's later in... Uh, I mean, I think that story is a great example of what John three sixteen and 17 is talking about. I mean, spot on. They... They didn't just they weren't just generous with their stuff, but they were willing to put themselves in harm's way. But yet I think in their own mind it wasn't harmful for them. Because they were living out the call of Jesus and they weren't afraid. As then you find in chapter four, which which were oh there there's no fear in love. Um, chapter verse eighteen of chapter four. So John spends his time, he says perfect love drives out fear. Well what fear is he talking about? Is it wrong to be fearful? I mean, we all get afraid of stuff <laughs> at times, but I think what John is calling back on, again, and it's just real hard to get Genesis out of your mind after you spend too much time with this, but he's, he's saying there's no more fear in death. Um, there's no more fear of what you know, the snake can do to you because it, all it can do is take your life away. I mean, it can take your body away, but it can't take who you are away. It can't take your suke away because that's held up in God if you are a child of God because God protects you because you are abiding with him and you're safe within his care. Um, and so, yeah, then you, so then you see these people who go into dangerous situations not afraid. They're motivated by this, by this overbounding, you know, hesed type of love and affection for their brothers because they want to seek their good no matter what it does to them. Yeah, and that is right, 4, thir- uh, four verse 18. For there is no fear in love. That's such a great example of that very phrase put into practice. Because perfect love casts out fear. It's probably worth a, just a quick word study on this word perfect. You'll see that several times. Love is perfected in us. This is perfect love. That word perfect there doesn't mean moral perfection. Or uh, we have a child who's doing his math master's tests at school, and he's super excited if he passes the test and gets every question right. That means he did it perfect, you know, right. But this isn't what that word means. This word is the word telos. It's a fancy old ancient word for when something reaches its intended state, when it is in its fullness, it is perfected, meaning it is made the way it was meant to be from the beginning, then we say it's perfected. This is in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, therefore you be perfect just as your heavenly father is perfect. He's not talking about moral perfections there. Sometimes that's translated as be mature, but even that, yeah, talking about God being mature seems a little bit weird. Um, he's, uh, he's saying there that you be the way you were intended to be when God made you in the beginning in that full state. And John uses that same word here to describe the type of love that he's talking about. And I think you're spot on there saying this is that chesed that we get from the Old Testament. This idea of love the way it is meant to be. And if you want to go see the way it was meant to be, you rewind the story back to the garden and see there when God walked in the garden Imagine with Adam and Eve, with the human beings before the fall. And the humans had everything they needed. And when God showed up, there was this excitement of, he's here in the breath of the day, God moving through before things fell. And John says, we're moving our way back there. We'll we'll maybe touch on that a little more in our concluding part. But that's what it means for love to be perfected, is to get back to that state where a group of people are willing to lay down their lives 
for each other without fear because the worst that could happen in, let's say it was that early pandemic, was the very next thing you hear is the creator of the universe saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. And there you are again in the garden, totally exposed, but without, John would say, without shame. And that just drives out any fear of, I don't know if I need to help that person because of (laughs) what it might result for me. Well, and then in verse 21, you know, he ends that whole section and says, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And it's easy to take that, I think, at first read and think, oh, that's that's an obligatory thing I have to do. I have to love other people. And I don't think that's what John is implying. I think his intention is saying, as you as you immerse yourself in this environment where God's, you know, has said takes over your life and your thoughts and your desires and your urges, it is then by instinct that you love your brother. It's by natural response that you love your brother. And then you image God in the way it was always intended to be done. Um, and so, and that's why he spends a moment talking about if you don't love your brother, how can you love me? Because your brother is a representation of who I am. And so if you don't love my ambassador, if you don't love the one who's reflecting the light that I'm putting into the world, how could you ever love the actual source of that light? You can't. And so there's this really strong connection. You see it throughout the entire, you know, First John, where if you, don't, if you, if you choose to not love your brother, um, good luck. I mean, you're, you're missing out on so much. And then even back in chapter 3, he tells you, if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. You're, you're essentially... And the way I express that in my own mind, you're wishing that person didn't exist. You're wishing that God never made them. And it's just horrible um, to have that sort of emotion towards other people, whereas God is saying, you're missing, you're missing the point. Because we talked about it last week, that the deception of the snake is trying to convince you that you need something, when in reality you already have it. So for some reason we think that when we can hate our brother and we have poor relations with others, it somehow benefits us. What it does is the complete opposite. Think of any relationship you've had that was fractured or broken. How did it benefit you? It did it. It harbored anger, resentment, you know, judgment, fear, and it just tears you apart. It hurts every part of your body. Uh, but as you try to move forward and you try to have right relations with people, you notice a change. You notice things differ. Um, sure, there'll be people who don't want to respond in that way, um, but your, our call is to emulate you know, the love of Christ in these people's lives and it's just amazing what happens when you actively pursue actions uh, for the betterment of others. Um, you, people, people start to notice that, and they see things. And I think this is what you see in the life of Christ. He did those types of actions, and it turned the world upside down. Um, and then you see that throughout the story of Acts. When you see the, the church spreading, the spirit moving, uh, the world got turned upside down. People's lives were changed for the better because they saw something that was more real and more satisfying uh, than the hatred and the anger that they held on to. And this apparently became the, the primary sermon that the Apostle John gave. So you can imagine, as we said, he is elderly by now. I mean, he's quite advanced in age, maybe even pushing 90 years old. And imagine him being in one of these congregations, maybe in Ephesus, and it's his turn to give the thoughts before communion or to expound on the scriptures 
And at that age, they said he had gotten to the point where he had to be carried just to the assembly by others. So there were other disciples that would carry him to the assembly. And we're told by one of the historians, Jerome, who's writing actually several years later, but stories that he heard from those early elders and bishops who would have known John. They said that when they would take John into the service and it was his turn to speak, he would stand up, he would look out, or not stand up, he would sit down, they would have a chair for him, and he would look out and he would say, love one another. That was well timed. (laughs) And that was his sermon. He would do that over and over. And some of the younger Christians says, why is it that you always, teacher, why is it that you always say just this? And John replied in a line worthy of John, this is what John said, because this is the Lord's commandment, and if it alone is kept, it is sufficient. Now, John wasn't saying that, oh, throw out the rest of Scripture. He, he wasn't saying that none of it's important. Uh, if this story is true, and there probably is an element of truth to this story, what John was saying is, this is what everything boils down to as the, the signal, the characteristic of what it means to follow Christ is to become like him. And that's what John says in this passage. We didn't read that exact line. But we become in this world what he is. Uh, among us. Well, we wanted to take the last few minutes of class today. Normally we would have our discussion at the first, but we decided to punt that kind of to the end and just open that up for discussion in the last couple of minutes. Uh, Let's just brainstorm for a minute or out loud. Would any of you be willing to just share what stood out to you from the passages that we read today or the discussion here in John? What, What stands out most to you? Thank you. Who else? was, you know, you think back to when Jesus says, when they were asking him, what are the greatest commands to follow? And he said, well, the sum of the law, so you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And a lot of scholars will say that's not two separate things. That's, they, that's two sides of the same coin. Um, you're supposed to do them in unison. Uh, one's not more important than other. You can't, you know, um, I saw it as a, uh, if you know what the infinity sign looks like, it was basically as you love God, you're motivated to love your brother. As you love your brother, you're more motivated to love God. Um, and so they go hand in hand. Yeah. Scott? Yeah, you guys talked earlier about all the things we can know that's talked about in John. And the one I'm trying to wrap my head around is the one from First John uh, 3, um, verse 2, where it says, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And that's a lot to know. Uh, 
I'm asking. <laughs> I mean, I think so, yeah. And we tried to, and I guess the one thing that helped is I think you have to decouple a little bit. When you see the word love, you have to decouple emotion. Because um, I don't think that's, I don't think that's at all what he's really getting at. Not necessarily, but that can be a result for sure. Um, because when you do when you do positive actions for other people, you get a benefit from that. It's not always just a one-way street. And so, and I think that manifestation is not a checklist. It's not a rule book. Um, it's going to look different for different people because we all have our own strengths and weaknesses. And I think, and we haven't touched on it yet. We might in a couple of weeks, but that's where the spirit comes in. Um, that's how. <laughs> it's so hard to really explain. I still struggle with it, but how the spirit works and moves in your life and what it directs you to do. Um, we're all, you have thoughts all day long. Um, and I think the biblical authors are trying to tell you those thoughts come from somewhere. There's things motivating you with those thoughts. Um, and I can't remember the story, but there's the one that always sticks with me is when um, one of the kings has like a, some sort of demonic spirit whispering in his ear, encouraging him to do things. But the very opposite of that, you have the spirit of God that does the same thing, but more powerfully so when you let it in. Um, so what that physically looks like, it's going to look different all the time. But the source of that goodness is still coming from God through his spirit working in us. Yeah, that's a great segue into, in a couple of weeks, we'll hit that phrase, test the spirits. And uh, that'll be part of our conclusion. Well, let's prepare now for worship and transition to our time to worship God together. Thank you.